from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is John Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. So glad you could join us today. Okay, so while a majority of Americans fully support the legalization of cannabis, many still get really squeamish when a dispensary tries to open its doors in their neighborhood. The phenomena is known as NIMBY, not in my backyard. And my guests today, Lauren Carpenter and Dustin Moore, are well aware of this. They are the co-founders of Embark, which is a Northern California cannabis retailer that has a unique and community-friendly approach to cannabis sales. Lauren and Dustin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. I should also mention that you are a married couple. Yes. And how long have you guys been married and been in business together? Good question. That requires me to slow down and think. Wow. Okay. I'll take that one. This is an easy win for me. So we're (laughs) we're on a decade of being together in our fourth year. Fourth year of marriage. Well, Congratulations on that. So let's get a little background before we get into what Embark is on each of you. Lauren, we'll start with you. Tell us your background in cannabis. How did you get started in cannabis? Yeah. So in some ways, my story is intrinsically linked with Dustin's. So I'll try not to steal his thunder and background as well. But Dustin was the campaign manager for Prop 64. And since the day I met him, as he said a decade ago, um, had been really active and passionate about cannabis policy. And so just as his significant other, I was really exposed to his passion and his excitement, but also I think all of the stakeholders that were at the table throughout the legalization movement. And so post-legalization, never one who wanted to have the uncool job compared to their significant other, I decided to pivot into cannabis. What were you doing previously? I was doing public affairs and community affairs in Sacramento for largely for Fortune 50s. And so Really, that's a a nice way of saying when there were policy or regulatory changes that were being enacted or that needed to be enacted, it was my job to interface less with the government about those changes, but really with stakeholders. And so I think it was through that kind of early career in stakeholder engagement that I saw a huge opportunity to transition into cannabis. And really with legalization, and I think to your point about nimbyism, I'd certainly experienced that in my career and saw this really saw cannabis as the next frontier for that conversation. We saw cannabis as with legalization came a lot of change and a lot of communities feel like change was overnight and we're left with this question of now what? And so I was one who ran toward that that question and that conversation. So, you know, in my background, I've worked, I worked for MedMen, then I pivoted and worked for Sweet Flower. So at the time, MedMen was probably the largest company, cannabis company in the country a number of years ago, then went to Sweet Flower where I think I was the second hire. So Very opposite experiences there, but both which sort of ultimately shaped coming to Embark. Yeah. Now, Dustin, uh, Lauren mentioned that you are very instrumental in Prop 64. Talk to me about why did you have that kind of passion for cannabis? Where did that come from? So as a child, I was presented cannabis as a medicine, and it was through my relationship with my father uh, who had brain aneurysms when I was seven years old. He, He had several and one burst on the operating table. It's an absolute miracle he survived. After his recovery, he suffered from significant seizures and the medication that he was taking to manage those seizures changed him as a person, like fundamentally who he was in a very negative way. 
So the side effects were extreme. And he had a friend that had suggested he try cannabis. And mind you, this was pre-1996. So Prop 215 had not even passed in California. So medical cannabis wasn't even allowable. So you know he's buying cannabis on the street, which uh, ultimately led to a run-in with law enforcement that was you know, unfavorable. And from that time on, I really saw this as a, a social justice issue and an issue of right and wrong. So at a very early age, I was predisposed to be an advocate for cannabis. But um, didn't really get to experience what that calling was meant to be until much later in my life. It was during 2012 when I was working in the legislature. I ran special political projects and ended up working on the original Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act, which failed, but ultimately culminated into uh, Proposition 64, which I started working on in 2014. We worked on um, all the qualitative and quantitative research, the drafting, and then ultimately running the campaign. And it was a really impactful moment in my life because it was taking my experience full circle. Several of my most proud accomplishments in that initiative was the fact that anybody that had a cannabis conviction on their record would be expunged. So there's been over 100,000 records that have been expunged since the passage of Prop 64. And even more importantly, parents who use cannabis for medical reasons cannot have their kids taken away by CPS. And that was not the case before Prop 64. So for me, this was less about the business side and more about the issues of what's right and wrong and why this policy was so important. And uh, certainly one of my most proud accomplishments. It's really great. And thank goodness you were there to do that. I didn't realize you had such a personal story attached to it. So you both had these incredibly impressive careers. Why did you pivot and decide to get into the extremely risky business of starting a retail business chain, Embark. <laughs> You're still asking yourself this question. Yeah, we had great timing because we really launched in earnest in early 2020. So just as everybody else was, you know, worried that the world was melting down, we uh we ran right into it. But I think it's certainly unique starting a business with your significant other. So I think that that's been a, an interesting dynamic there. But I think for us, it was. Dust post post Prop 64, Dustin had worked with most of the operators in California in, in one fashion or another. Um, and I obviously had been working within the industry as well. And so I think for both of us, you always, every experience you have is so formative. It's, you know, you, you take so many lessons learned of the things you want to do and so many opportunities or ideas of how you would do them differently. And so I think being the control freak that I am, this was just a great opportunity to, I think, really mold something in that vision of what I was really hoping to see in our communities and in and in my own community. I think Dustin, that's I would ask you, like, why did we do that? What what felt right about this in 2020? Like what yeah, let's let's start retail. Of course you couldn't have predicted that COVID would come around. I'm sure that you had the idea before 2020. Yes, thank goodness. <laughs> yes, thank goodness. But yes, Dustin, question to you, why? Why retail? So for me, it was born out of my entrepreneurial background, I, I started a landscaping company when I was 13, ended up selling that when I was 17 and started several companies after that. And I've always been a builder. And that was something that was just, it's just embedded who I am as a person. And as I was doing consulting work for a number of cannabis companies, I realized there was a massive gap in the market. There were a lot of retailers that were making promises to communities that they just weren't following through on, I think as Lauren has alluded to. And we realized through this process of actively participating in the industry that there was an opportunity for us to take our ability as entrepreneurs and builders and to marry that and couple it with our deep care and respect for communities. And that's how Embark was born. And the, the, the reasoning behind it was simply that we saw an opportunity in a moment in time where we could build something better than had already existed. 
And we could do right by communities and in turn, communities would do right by us. And what I mean by that is that our community give back is fundamental to our core values, but simultaneously it helps and builds a moat around our business. Because as you're working with particular communities and they're trying to figure out cannabis, what they often do is there's missteps. And when you have an entire community behind you supporting your business model and your business, it actually prevents terrible policy decisions from happening. So as an example, in one of the communities that we operate in, they were looking at expanding more licenses. And this is a community that was fully saturated with cannabis. We believe we were the first in the nation to partner with the Boys and Girls Club. And why that was meaningful is in front of that hearing where the council was deciding whether or not they were going to expand the number of licenses, to have the executive director of the Boys and Girls Club and folks from the Youth Drug Education and Prevention Program standing up and saying, we stand with Embark and doing this is going to hurt this business, which in turn is going to hurt our community nonprofits, is incredibly meaningful. So oftentimes, I think that cannabis companies can be short-sighted on the importance of following through on their promises with community because you realize these communities are your allies in your darkest moments. Talk to me about how you've worked with your communities you just mentioned that example, the Boys and Girls Club. and and But talk to me about how you ingratiated yourselves to the communities before you even opened your doors. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to that. And I think that's really core to answering the question is we don't have a template here. We have lessons learned from engaging with communities that I think continues to inform and inspire what we do and the conversations we have. But it really, this isn't rocket science. It really starts with a listening tour. If we identify a community as a community where we think Embark would be a good fit, and that's really a process in and of itself because Embark does not apply in every community that opts to move forward with a retail license. We really look to communities where we have a sort of similar, we share a similar ethos or values where we think our business model and kind of culture would be really well received. And then truly and candidly, I hit the pavement. I spend months often meeting with anyone and everyone who will meet with me to ask them questions about how they feel about cannabis coming to their community. And I really, I think it's taken some confidence and it's taken some time. But at this point, I really lean into a lot of the tough, the tougher meetings and kind of the tough questions because we know that in these communities, there are often an, a majority, sometimes an overwhelming majority that want to see legal cannabis down the street or in their neighborhood, because we know so many of us are using cannabis. But there's always that vocal minority, the ones that come out with their pitch score, you know, pitchforks at city council mm-hmm. meetings. And so really, I try and lean into those and have those conversations too. And I think that really, it's that listening tour and that process that informs who we identify as community partners, who we bring to the table. And we actually have those folks at the table with us as we start to develop our business model for that community. So what are you hearing? Like on your listening tour, what are the complaints? I'm just curious. I mean, I think we sort of imagine it, but just tell me what people can anticipate. I would imagine it's a lot about, you know, the kind of person that's going to be coming to a dispensary, right? I mean, what what are some of the things, the concerns you hear? Everything that you expect and more. I think there's one of the biggest things we hear or one of the biggest concerns is always related to youth. And it's interesting because that conversation evolves all the time. So there's sort of the 
the same scare tactics we've heard all the time, which is if if legal safe cannabis is in our community, the kids will be hooked on it, right? So there's still that conversation, but it's interesting because it's also really evolving to be, okay, if cannabis is coming to my community, how do I talk to my children about this? Either because I use cannabis and that's awkward. My kids are now in middle school or high school. How can I talk to them about this product that I use? Or I think also it's been really interesting. We're seeing in communities, we're seeing entire communities grappling with a youth sort of vaping crisis where these kids can't even sit through one class without going to their bathroom to hit a vape. And so I think that's spread a lot of misinformation about overwhelmingly it's tobacco that's in those vapes, which by the way, I'm not endorsing that either. But so it's just, it's sitting down and really unpacking a lot of those fears and often providing resources for that. I think it's getting folks to see that cannabis retail is just retail. And if you allow us to have a seat at the table, we can be a true partner. Yeah. What do you tell them about? Because I mean, you mentioned this thing about kids and it kind of makes my skin crawl because it's just, it's so misguided. And, you know, we've seen that, first of all, the research does not bear out that argument at all, that when cannabis becomes legal, there's not been an uptick. And if anything, there's been less incidences of, of kids using cannabis. And it's really the illicit market that provides the kids with cannabis. It's hard pressed for a young person under, you know, whatever the age is, 18, 21 to get into a dispensary. I mean, they're so strict about letting people in, but you can't like talk to them like that. (laughs) You have to be reasonable, right? You can't be like, you guys are idiots. What do you say? What do you tell them? Well, sometimes I say you guys are idiots in my head, right? When it's just, when it's crazy talk. But I think like all things in cannabis, it's an art and it's a science. Sometimes the conversations, you can be more fact-based and you can provide research that in fact, your home values go up in neighborhoods that see legal licensed cannabis, that youth usage goes down. I mean, there are some constituents who believe it or not, there are some of us in the world that still believe in data and where that can be a a component or a compelling component of the conversation. But honestly, I mean, I think it's part therapy. It's sitting down and letting people say their greatest fears. And then really, I think being able to point to how that hasn't happened In every community where we operate, let me tell you what operations look like. And let me tell you the role our community advisory board plays. And then often I've had conversations sometimes with the largest opponents where I've said, and why don't you come sit on our community advisory board? Which means for the lifetime of our operations, you'll have a seat at the table in advising what our business operations look like in your community. Like, let's just demystify this piece, people. Like, let's pull the the curtain back. And I think that's so huge. It's showing cannabis has been vilified. We know this. It's been demonized for so long that I think the first step is truly just showing people that you are just a person. I'm the co-founder and CEO of this business you're scared of, but I'm just a person. And, and I'm super open to, like, let's workshop your concerns. I'm sure they're surprised when they meet people like you too, because they probably don't have this image of people who run dispensaries. So they're like whoever, like stoner or like B, I don't know, whatever it is, but it's not who you guys are. And it's, you know, you well-spoken professional. It probably, it's, you're good ambassadors for the plant. Dustin, 
you guys chose interesting places to open up your dispensaries, right? Like you didn't, you're from the Bay Area or you live in the Bay Area. You didn't open up like a San Francisco and Oakland. You chose communities, smaller communities in Northern California. Why was that? Why was that decision made? I think there was a higher execution risk going into those communities. And we felt that our skill set was suited to overcome that as far as the, the nimbyism and the pushback of this type of a business. We believe that those markets presented a greater opportunity because they've never had a prevalence of legal cannabis. And they certainly had a minimal illicit industry that was operating. And for us, that's important because you look at larger markets like Los Angeles and San Francisco, and while they're van- we call them vanity markets, it's challenging to operate there because of the competition with the traditional market, as well as some of the larger platforms and um, retailers. They're, they're noisy media markets. They're noisy. It's hard to get the word out about your brand and about your store. So for us, we saw this as an opportunity to go to places that had never been presented with cannabis and to put together the presentation that we believe uh, was consistent with the community values. And additionally, we believe that that has um, yielded several things. One, very profitable businesses that are able to grow in this challenging market. But two, to present cannabis as we believe it should be presented to community. And what I mean by that is We have a very unique model whereby we are a bodega where people can actually pick up the products, experience them, you know, in their hands, touch them, read the ingredients, uh, get to know them before they purchase them. We found that, you know, 60% of people are more likely to buy a product if they can touch it. So for us to be able to go into communities and present a unique offering and a unique expression, retail, experiential retail expression has, has done really well for us as a company. And I think has also helped educate communities in a way about cannabis that is more approachable, less austere. And that ultimately helps us destigmatize cannabis at scale, which is one of our main charges is going back to our policy work and carrying that now through in our uh, retail business model. Lauren, you mentioned that a lot of dispensaries talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They'll, they'll say a lot of things before they open their doors to the community about what they're going to do, and then they don't necessarily follow through. But you guys have. So tell me about what's happened. Like Once you open the doors of your shops, how do you still let the community in and follow through on your promises? Yeah, I think some of that is just who we are and who we strive to be every day because our guides, we call our bud tenders guides, our guides are on the front lines of engaging with communities and really doing that education and destigmatization one sort of one interaction at a time. But I think from a business model perspective, I, you know, I mentioned this a few minutes ago. In each community where we operate, we designate kind of key stakeholders in the community that really they're very diverse and and run the gamut in terms of their backgrounds and professional experiences. And we have them coalesce their voluntary board and they oversee, they're kind of our feedback and accountability loop because these are folks who live in their communities and who have no problem picking up the phone and calling me at any hour of day or night to let me know if they hear something or they see something or they, you know, or they have an idea. So I think they've probably been one of the biggest components of our successful integration within community. You know, we meet with this group before we ever even submit an application. Obviously, we meet with these folks too as part of the listening tour to get them to buy in on being part of our board. We meet with them as we develop our our business model and application for that community. And then we meet with them quarterly throughout the lifetime of the business. And it's that group, rather than Dustin and I, you know, sitting at our dining room table deciding where to allocate our community funding and give backs, it's the community advisory board that does that. So every store allocates 1% of grocery receipts in perpetuity to a community investment fund. And we, every quarter, take those funds 
to our community advisory board and say, where is the most pressing need in this community right now? As nonprofit leaders, as pastors, as school board members, as parents, as cannabis consumers, as uh, folks who are reticent about cannabis, how can we make an impact right now? And I will tell you, launching a business at the start of a pandemic, we went into this thinking, oh, you know, these are some really exciting community projects that we can support and fund. And then a global pandemic hit. And it was really incredible to be able to see how quickly we were able to pivot those funds to meet needs that, you know, three days prior, the community didn't realize they had because they didn't exist yet. And I think the, you know, I always joke, my mom was the executive director of a nonprofit, couple nonprofits as I was growing up. And so I always joke, we would say grace at night at dinner to the, you know, the God of unrestricted funding. Anyone that's ever done any nonprofit work knows how serious that is. And so I think that's what I like to see us as now is, is this, is nimble funding and volunteerism that can immediately target to community need in real time without red tape and bureaucracy. And so I think that's the way we've been able to make the biggest impact. You guys both spend some time as guides, bud tenders, right? And when you open a store in the early days, right? Is that, did I get, I remember you telling me that. Yep, absolutely. Dustin, tell me about that experience and why you guys do that. I think there's an element of after you've built something and you've created an end product, you want to see how your your customer reacts. And it's the most exciting thing for us because the buildup to opening a store is so tedious. But when those, when those doors open, the excitement, we had our first grand opening that was kind of outside really restrictive COVID protocols in Fairfield. So, so our first three stores we opened was the depths of COVID. And it was really challenging to do a grand opening. But our, our most recent opening, we had you know a line of 200 people out front and the excitement and energy, it, it Energizes us. I think it's it's something for me that it's taking the process full circle. But I think I, I find it very interesting when people come into our store. So I often put myself in the greeter position because I like to see how people react to our differentiated model because folks aren't used to being able to pick up products. So they walk in and they look around and they see all the product out and they they almost freeze up because they're like, well, what, what what do we do? So we get to explain to them, you know, how our guides, we have a one-on-one experience that we're founded in education about our products and, and experiences and really meeting people where they are in their cannabis journey. So it's, it's really critical for us to survey each individual customer and see what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. What does cannabis do for them? Why are they doing this? And that part is exciting. So being able to explain to somebody that they can pick up a product, handing them a basket and watching their face light up because all of a sudden this is now like going to their, their neighborhood market. And it's less of a stigmatized behind the counter. Behind the glass. It's always the glass. Yeah. The glass cases. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah. That's cool. Is there anything that you learned in real time? Because, you know, you have all these great plans and ideas, and then you open your doors and you realize that you need to change something. I'm curious if there's anything that you learned sort of on the spot that you guys, an example of something that you had to sort of adjust to accommodate the needs of, of your customers. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think for us, we've historically looked at in retail, it's location, location, location. So 
Our Tahoe store is co-located effectively with the Heavenly Ski Mountain at State Line with all of the gaming. So it's it's really right in the center of the entertainment district. And what that meant was we ended up with a slightly smaller footprint than we necessarily wanted. We caught this before opening and had to end up expanding our building. But what we realized is that to get the velocity of sales that we like to see and to give people the space they want to spend time in the store, because we don't rush people through. I mean, people can spend as much time, often first-time visitors spend, you know, significant amount of time in our shops and just allocating proper floor area, ensuring your inventory room is the ample size. You know, Tahoe is, is another, as another example is remote. So when you think about supply chain and you know how often distributors have to come and how much product you can carry, we had to figure out some unique racking systems to accommodate all of the, the inventory as we ramp up for big weekends, like 4th of July, et cetera, and operationally understanding how to take a retail platform, create systems and process and allow that to be scalable. And I'd say that that's been something that initially we, I don't want to say underestimated, but certainly we understood the gravity of, of creating that that platform and, and we've achieved that now. But certainly there's been a lot of trial and error on the ground. I think even thinking about things like we do all-inclusive pricing. So you go into our store, whatever price you see, that's what the price is out the door. That That is not common in dispensaries, but customers often get confused by that. And then, you know, like even our, our little price labels, you know, that fall down sometimes we've, we've just had to, you know, we've had to learn. And the, the thing about it is, you know, there's not a lot of specialization in cannabis retail yet. I mean, there's some, and there's, you know, there, there's like, it's, it's going in that direction, but you know, I know while it's incredibly cliche, I mean, we're still, you know, building the plane while we're in the air. And I think there's something inherently exciting about that for our core group of founders based on just who we are as individuals. How do you find the right kind of employees? Because it's so important to have the right help in any business, particularly in cannabis retail, where there's so much interaction between your, your guides and your customers. How do you guys vet and how do you keep employees happy? Great questions. <laughs> it's a lifelong process, I would say. In terms of finding the right people, I would say there's no easy answer to that. It's hard. It's really hard. It's really in having the right people at the table, making doing that outreach and having those conversations and making those decisions. And through that lens, our head of retail human resources is a woman named Amber. And Amber actually started, she was our, I think our second or third employee ever hired for Tahoe two plus years ago now. So she started at the retail level. And I think it was through being a retail manager at an Embark, Dustin and I relocated to South Lake for three or four months to, to really build the first store and the first team. It was very important to me to be on the ground and setting that you can't put your values in a PowerPoint and expect them to, to permeate in any way. And so I think we really invested in that team and I've continued to be delighted with sort of what that has meant for us. But one of those, I think, exciting outcomes is Amber, who then was a manager at this shop, really had that experience of what does it take to, to create a really successful and thriving retail team? And she came to us and said, guys, I want to do more than just than just be a manager like let you know let me build our teams let me build this infrastructure and so we actually gave her a scholarship to go get her education in human resources in Cornell and she's now leading our HR team across all of the retail and i think she brings that she's the perfect person to be leading that charge for us because she's been a part since day one of crafting who Embark is. And I think we fail as a company if Embark is Dustin or I or our local partners or our community advisory boards and not 
our team because they are the face of our company every single day. And so I think we've been able to be successful in finding a lot of really fantastic people in large part because Amber is really kind of the front lines of finding those folks. And she knows so well what it takes because she's been in their shoes. And I think that's helpful too in how we continue to engage with our shop teams. Because again, we aren't asking them to do anything that, you know, that Amber hasn't done. But candidly, that Dustin and I haven't done either. You know, we we've worked the floors, we've built inventory room shelves, we've kind of done it all. Yeah, it's so important that they see that you're there too. And I know that I talked to other companies where like the they don't even know who the CEO is, <laughs> like they've never seen that person. What is the future of Embark? What you guys? How many stores do you have right now currently operating? We have four open today. We're developing six additional right now, so we're we're effectively swinging hammers to get. Six more doors open this year. Our platform should be approximately 20 doors by the end of next year, but we don't want to limit ourselves. We've had such a high degree of success in securing licenses and operating in communities that you know we really hope to be one of the larger platforms in California. And by large, I don't I think the experience um, is so critical to us. So large often means you know sacrificing experience for scale. And that's not what we're going to do. I think what we've done is we've built a platform that can withstand the scale that we have in front of us today and are just excited to be able to present this offering in communities throughout California. Our goal is to have 80% statewide coverage by the end of 2023. Well, that's very exciting. Lauren and Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more about Embark, where should they go? They can check us out at goembark.com and we're spelled E-M-B-A-R-C. Well, thank you both. And best of luck in your future endeavors. Well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, head on over to greenentrepreneur.com for the latest cannabis and CBD news, thoughtful essays, tips, and insider tricks on how to succeed in the cannabis business, all that good stuff. And hey, if you like this podcast, do me a huge solid and go to wherever you may listen to your podcast and please rate and review our podcast. It does wonders for the algorithm, helps others find the podcast, would so appreciate a review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.